so on the Masters of Craft series that you do, um, been very fortunate to have a lot of really amazing people on it. Um, On this week's episode, I don't think it's an overstatement to say like an actual legend is going to be on the show. Um, For for people that don't know who Glenn Keane is, can you help kind of, I don't know, educate them on who who Mr. Keane is? Yeah. um, Glenn is, um, you know, it's almost, it's, it's sort of like you say, he's he's an actual legend. Uh, So it's almost hard to contain who he is in a, in a little uh, intro, but he, um, and also just a very cool down to earth dude on top of everything else. He is, uh, he's an animator and a designer, a director, um, uh, was just nominated for an Oscar for his, uh, movie, um, uh, over the moon. Um, yeah, yeah. That movie, that movie wrecked the whole family. Yeah. Did a great job. Yeah. He was part of the, uh, I would say a major component in sort of the, the Disney sort of Renaissance. They had had a long slump and then came back with, uh, little mermaid and beauty and the beast and, and, and all of that. And he was in Aladdin, um, and Pocahontas and he was all part of that. So he, um, designed and animated the beast and beauty and the beast. Same thing with Ariel and little mermaid. Uh, the same thing with Pocahontas. Um, he was, uh, he animated Aladdin in Aladdin. Uh, he, um, so that's just, for most some- people, Glen Keane is your childhood. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? you know I mean? yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, he, he's just, um, he, he's one of the most thoughtful people about the craft who I know. Mm-hmm. Um, he thinks a lot about how he does what he does. Um, and I would say that a lot of what he does, there's a lot of craft in what he does, but there's so much of it that is so much of him. He's very good at putting himself on, on mm. the page that the, the emotional component is as important as the craft component, I think, for him. Um, if he doesn't connect emotionally, it's not, I don't think it's working for him. I think he needs to, um, well, he said when he was animating the beast, he was hunched over and had his, so he, he hurt, right? Because he's becoming these characters. He is yeah. those characters. And I think he imbues them with, uh, life in a way that, um, um, few people can do. A lot of people are good animators and a few people yeah. can do what he can do, but not that many. And there yeah. is something special about what he does the same way when we've talked about Frank Oz and talked to Frank Oz, there's something special about what Frank Oz does. There are lots of puppeteers around him when he was a puppeteer um, doing, you know, fine work. But why is it his stuff that's standing out, right? There's some component of, of there's some alchemy that both of these, yeah. both of these guys have. Um, they are craftspeople, but they are, there's something else they bring. And I think it's, they, um, they aren't afraid to be vulnerable on the page. Um, and I think that comes through. And I think that's the spark of life that happens with their work. Um, yeah, I could, I could go on and on about Glenn. Um, just like I said, just as just a really good guy. Uh, who, you know, is busy, but made the time to do this interview. Um, 
so we're I think we're lucky to 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 have him uh, on the show. One of those few people, a true living legend on this week's episode, Mr. Glenn King. Hello and welcome to You Are a Storyteller, Masters of the Craft, a conversational series hosted by author and filmmaker Brian McDonald. In this episode, Brian is joined by animator and director Glenn Keane, best known for his work on Disney classics like The Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, and Pocahontas. Glenn shares how he taps into childhood discovery to properly create his characters and why he believes mentorship is foundational to animation. You actually are the reason for this version of You Are a Storyteller. Oh, yeah? Yeah. I was, um, you know, trying to help you with your piece. Um, And I was there in that capacity. But I was also a fan who felt like I was getting a front row seat to the way you think and create. And I thought this is a kind of privileged position when you get to work with so many creative people, you get to see how they think, you get to see how they work, you get to see how they process. And uh, it's hidden from most people. So there are lots of people who, um, you know, who I never got to, to meet or to, to hang out with or talk to. Uh, that I would have liked to. So this is um, the reason for this show really is that um, is for people who maybe even, you know, are little kids or not born or whatever, who may want to look at this later and say, oh, that's what that person was thinking. That's how they created. So thanks for the idea for this show. (laughs) Yeah, that's such a great idea. Um, And I really, really wish somebody had thought of it and talk to some of the people in the past that I would have loved to glean from, like Freddie Moore, and even beyond that. I mean, as I've often said, I've, I've learned from the dead guys. Um, they've been my mentors from whatever I can glean, but to have a conversation is the best. Yeah, I, I feel the same way. I feel like my mentors are have mostly been dead guys, or they've been... <laughs> Or they've died when I was too young to appreciate who they were. Like Rod Serling is such a huge influence on me, but he died when I was 10. Right. And so when he became sort of an actual human being in my brain, he was already gone. Um, I still learn a lot from him, but uh, they can make good teachers, the people who aren't here anymore, but it sure would be nice to be able to talk to them. Yeah. Yeah. Now you mentioned Freddie Moore. Can you explain who Freddie Moore was? Uh, for people who don't know and what you think you could have learned from him or what you do learn from him. I know you told me once about how you drew like Freddie Moore for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Freddie Moore was the um, kind of the secret sauce in Disney that wasn't there until he came. Um, And all of the nine old men, everything funnels down to this one guy who had this spark of appeal in everything he drew. He couldn't not put it in. And he couldn't even explain what it was. It just was there. Um, and I, I suspect, and I don't know, but I suspect there's a, a kindred spirit in the way that he created because I, I sense it in his drawing. Uh, in his I know drawing. that feeling. I know that feeling. I know what you're talking about. 
Yeah, yeah. You feel like, hey, I know this melody. Why, why is this so familiar? It's like when I look at his work, I can hear the music. I remember having a conversation with Eric Larson. Um, with uh, no, we were in a little auditorium with all the animators and all the new folks that were at Disney, and we were learning from him. And Eric was explaining, no, in order to animate, first you visualize it clearly in your mind, and then then you can draw it and. <laughs> It's just impulsively, I just felt like, oh, I, that's not, that's not true. And I, I said, uh, Eric, I don't see it. And he looked at me like, well, of course you see it. And then he continued on and, and I wouldn't let him continue on. I said, no, I don't see it in my head. And he had to stop like, okay, one, how do you draw it if you don't see it in your head? You know, and I, I was kind of looking at me and I said, you know, Eric, I don't know, but I can't say I do see something when I don't and I don't. But he says, well, then how do you draw? He said, I don't know. It's actually in doing it. It starts to speak to me by me doing it. I find it. It reveals itself to me. That's that's how it is for me. And. Eric said, no, I, I'm sure that you do see it. You just it. Yeah, so, so he just kept going on. But I, I sense that when I see Freddie Moore's drawing and all the people that he affected, that there was this um, natural spring coming out of him and how he touched all of my mentors. Uh, and he did it in the most intuitive way, but he couldn't. He was also a caution tale for me, and I would love to talk with him because he he didn't keep up. He, right. he hit a limit where he could do his thing in bringing a rhythm to, to Mickey Mouse, designing the dwarves and everything that had that beautiful flowing soft cuteness with cheeks and everything like you could hold them. That all came from Freddie Moore, and he passed that on. But he didn't really go deeper into anatomy and understand the skeleton and like to be able to animate Bambi was beyond what he was able to do. But guys who learned from him, Mark Davis, they could do it. Right. Eventually he, he became less, they became more. And that's a beautiful picture of mentorship. But I'm trying to practice now what I wished I could have talked to Freddie about, which was reverse mentorship and learning from the younger people around you and continuing to grow. That's, that's what my life is about now. I mean, I know I will continue to mentor, but it's really surrounding myself with people I want to learn from. You know, my mentor, um, Bruce Walters is always still telling me how much he's learning from me, which is really, I mean, he hired me to work for him, uh, doing motion graphics when I was, uh, about 13 years old. And, uh, so I've known him that whole time. And he's like, Oh, you think you, you know, that you got the, the good end of the deal, but I did. I'm learning so much from you. Um, That's and he, says, he says he always has. I, I don't see it. He's always my mentor to me, you know. But uh, that's what he says. He swears that it's true. Um, and I so 
I remember a day bringing in my sketchbook for Frank and Ollie. Uh, and I was 20 years old and had been sketching down Laguna Beach. And I, I don't even know what the drawings were, people on the beach. And I, I got enough nerve to show Ollie. And Ollie was looking at these little sketches that were really crummy, I'm sure. Um, but he was like, oh, man, that's, I, you know, I got to show this to Frank. I said, what, what? And he takes it, gets, he, he starts walking out the door and down the hallway, and there's a little linoleum path. I mean, like, worn path in the linoleum floor between Frank and Ollie's office. So I just kind of followed that little path, and he goes in, he says, Frank, look at this, look at this. And he points out this sketch, and Frank, oh, I know somebody just like that. Yeah, and they... They started just talking about this drawing that I did that I couldn't see the value in it, but they did. I didn't, I thought, why are they trying, why are they faking this to make me feel good? You know, I mean, I, I don't believe this, but part of me hoped that it was actually true. Mm -hmm. And I'll never forget that, that the joy of them still seeing value in somebody really young coming mm -hmm. in. What do you think they saw? I think they saw um, observation, something true. I'd seen something true and it came through and I picked it up and it was just as real as if I picked up a flower in a field and brought it in and showed you. There was, it still was authentic and it still smelled, has a fragrance of truth to it. And I think they smelled it. It was like, and that's everything they always went for was truth. And yeah, it's not, you don't have to be, you know, 50 years old to capture that. You can do it. Like my granddaughter this morning showed me a drawing of an alligator character that was, oh gosh, I, I was, I, I was just blown away. I, and I showed it to Max, uh, his, her dad. And I said, Max, look at this drawing. Can you imagine any better? design of a little alligator than this and he was just like what that is wonderful it, this is i don't know if you can see it i'm going to hold it up to the camera oh, <laughs> oh that's nice that's all of little six-year-old olive's alligator girl with a dress and eyelashes and it was not based on anything other than what she knows about an alligator, not copying right. any artistic style or anything. Do you think, because your, your dad drew and uh, was uh, a successful comic strip artist, was that a daily or a weekly? Daily. Yeah. Daily strip. Um, so you, you grew up around uh, art and somebody drawing and somebody creating. But that doesn't always take. People grow up around that and they, and they, they don't do it. Some do. Do you think, uh, because you've got, uh, you've got you, uh, your, your brother, also an illustrator, correct? Your, uh, uh, your children, right? Uh, do you think there's a genetic component or do you think it's just being around it? Well, I, I really look at, um, different paths of success and there's different ways sometimes it's through the adversity of parents that don't believe at all and don't value what you yeah i mean that creates a certain 
determination and fiery steeliness of the soul that is going to carry you through as an artist for the rest of your life. And that's a strange way of gift. But I work really, really hard. I don't think anybody works harder than I do. But I, I really believe that the things, the most wonderful things, are the things that you suddenly find in front of you and you pick up. You can't believe it. So my view is whether it's it's a spirit that is born into a family where no one encourages that, uh, a flower pushing out from the asphalt, pushing up, and despite that, it, it's going to rise up. That's a gift. Or for me, I was put in the spot where my mom... It's the most wonderful, encouraging woman. Uh, everything was possible with for her. Dad met her in World War II um, in, in Australia, and she moved out here. And she just had this incredible positive spirit. And she would say, Glenn, you can do anything you want. And she, she always say it with that wonderful Australian accent. And, and she'd say, love, the world is your oyster. And, and I just... It was, she would say that, and there was such power to her words. But probably the most powerful or equally powerful moment came for me because um, I would shadow my dad everywhere. Uh, we'd go to the art store together, and um, I'd always come away with some sketch pad or some paints, or, or we would go out into the desert, um, and there was a good friend of his because – he moved us all out to Paradise Valley, Scottsdale, Arizona, um, in the fifties, and there was nothing out there. And there was this old shack, uh, and a guy named Don Barkley lived there. He was a vaudeville actor, friend of Walt Disney. Um, matter of fact, in um, Mary Poppins, he's one of the guys that fires the cannons on the, the ship. Um, but he was a, an artist. He was a painter. He'd go into his shack. He was a bachelor. And it always smelled like oil paints in there. And there was these paintings around. And he was a great caricaturist. And Dad and he were great friends. And so they would sit at, I mean, Don Barkley's house was basically a bar in the bedroom with a bed. And the rest of it was just the place for easels and painting. It was kitchen. But behind the bar, that's where the kitchen was. And so you sit at the bar and um, Dad and him would, drink a beer and smoke cigars. And I sit there on a stool and I had my root beer and I had the big, he gave me a big pretzel stick. That was my cigar. And I, and I just like admired this guy, Don Barkley and their friendship. And at one point, um, I think I may have been like nine, eight years old, something like that. Dad said, Glenn, I'm a cartoonist. You're an artist. That was the most wonderful thing I think I'd ever heard. (laughs) He was taking a sword and putting it on either shoulder. It felt like that. And he gave me a book uh, by Bern Hogarth, Dynamic Anatomy. And I started trying to learn the figure and muscles and I remember getting on the school bus uh, with these drawings I had done of the thinker, 
and go down. Um, and then discus thrower, the Greek uh, statue. And uh, they were both nudes. Um, and on, in the school bus, the other kids gathered around and they looked at my sketchbook and they all started laughing. These were my friends. They started laughing at the drawings and um, saying, <laughs> Keen's drawing naked guys. And, you know, when your friends are laughing at, at you because of something that you do, you don't do that anymore. <laughs> you yeah. Push it aside. Yeah. But and so I was at a fork in the road right there at a really young age. But because dad had said that, I realized they don't get it. They are not artists. I am, of course. And I just felt so special and so wonderful to have a path that I, I loved. And I just cherish it. They, they, they were still great friends and I never felt bad. I just thought they don't, they just don't get it. But that's interesting. I, I had a similar experience and that's when I stopped drawing. Oh. Yeah. I drew all the time. And then, um, all of my sort of reference at that point was, um, were sort of cartoons from the thirties. And there were all those books, um, the Preston Blair books. And, you know, those, those books where I was sort of learning to draw from those things. But a lot of my friends drew from comic books. That's where they were learning. And so their stuff looked more realistic in my mind. And one, at one point, a friend of mine said, um, that I couldn't draw. And I was devastated and I was embarrassed and I stopped drawing. Um, it still, uh, feels odd when I draw at all, like do a little sketch or something. I still am a little self-conscious about it because of it. And what, what's interesting though, that same person, uh, did a drawing one day and he brought it to school and he said to me, Brian, can you come up with a story for this drawing? And I said, why? And he goes, well, you're good at that. I, what? I did, I had no idea. And so, uh, so sometimes people hear that story and they're like, what kind of a friend is that? But he was also the friend that told me, um, let me know what, what he thought I was good at. And that was enough to keep me on that path. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Those words have such power and they sink, go down into your soul. They do. Yeah. They do. So it's interesting that you had that, that I had the fork. I took the other road. Um, but what I did do when you were talking about doing nudes, but you didn't think of it that way because you were just thinking about the drawing. And when I was a teenager, uh, I used to go to the movies all the time by myself, um, and watch the movie over and over again to study it. And then I would watch the audience after a few screenings to see if they were responding in the same places or whatever. But I would see rated R movies all the time without understanding that I wasn't supposed to be like to me, it was at school. And so it wasn't like some big thing I was getting away with or anything. I just paid my money and they let me in. They never had questioned me. Um, I think because I was so oblivious, <laughs> you know, but I, I was I was in school. And so I didn't see it like, uh, you know, people would say, oh, that's rated R. And it would never even occur to me. You know, I was just studying. So yeah. I know that feeling, too. Yeah, there's something inside of you that you're responding to. You just got to 
felt something up. You're not sure exactly what it is, but yeah, you're learning. You never want to, you never want to let go of that. No, that's a thing that you're very, very good at. A lot of people, it's that Freddie Moore thing. A lot of people get good enough. Maybe they even get great, but there is a point where almost everybody stops. I've noticed. Um, the people who never stop tend to be the people who, um, their stuff lasts. Um, I think they usually have a bigger impact, um, because they're always growing. Um, you said something to me once about the transformation in Beauty and the Beast. Uh, I'm curious about that, if you'll talk about that, but also talk about this thing you tend to do, which is going right after the thing you're afraid of, going at it directly instead of avoiding it. Mm -hmm. So uh, can you talk a little bit about, about the Beauty and the Beast transformation and then uh, more about why you do this? Um, well, the Beauty and the Beast transformation was I I loved the idea of something coming from the inside out and physically transforming this this creature. I mean to physically think about how you transform. I just remember growing up and loving watching werewolf actually transforming. I mean somebody turning into this monster. I mean, that was just like, whoa, I could not, it just captured my imagination so much. Um, but this point was something really beautiful coming out of the beast. Uh, and I remember really worrying about it looking mm, not earned. No. I mean, your beast had suffered. Um, and there was an enormous amount of pain that he went through living as a beast. And you just couldn't, like, there he is, the prince. Wow, he's transformed. Okay. It, and now that I'm saying this, I... I'm putting words to what I couldn't put words to. All I knew is that I was stuck and I had no time. I had one week to figure this thing out. And, um, and I'd been waiting the whole film for this moment. And I don't know, I must have said something to somebody because Don Hahn, the producer came in and said, uh, so how you doing, Glenn? I said, oh, I'm so frustrated. I've got, I've been waiting the whole film to do this and I've been busy with like everything else. And I'm just exploding with frustration about why I don't have time to do what I really love to do. And he said, Glenn, okay. You take the time. We will, I will figure out whatever we have to do, however long you need to make this moment great. You just take that time. Let me just. Take care of the rest. Oh, thank you. And I'm not sure what he had to do, but I just got up and thought, okay, I'm not finding it here. I'm just going to go. And I'm going to go to the Norton Simon Museum. 
and um, just be in touch with artists who didn't do animation. But there was something about Degas that I always felt like it was coming from the inside of him and just related to him. And Martin Simon has a great collection of Degas paintings and uh, sculptures. So I'm walking up to the Norton Simon, but before I could get in, there was the Burgers of Calais by Rodin. And these beautiful sculptures are of the leaders of the city that um, was going to be conquered. And the only way that they would spare the citizens of the city is by killing, by taking these leaders and they would sacrifice their lives for the city. And so these men are, are walking out in chains and with ropes around them as they are in deep angst and suffering, but knowing it's for noble purposes. And Rodin's sculptures were just, the feet were glorified feet and the hands were true, powerful, weighty hands. I mean, you would never struggle opening a jar of uh, pickles with those hands. <laughs> uh, pop off anything. And though, but what I, and I, as I went in there, I just found myself circling, looking at this sculpture, these figures of so much going on inside. And, and I was fascinated and I couldn't help but start drawing them. And what I was really drawing was the back, the, the way he, he sculpted, Rodin sculpted the back of these figures was as if they were canyons. The muscles um, were so beautifully defined, um, with the back bent over and the shoulder blades and all of that. So I was sketching that. And as I was doing that, I realized this is how the transformation has to be. You see the beast hunched over, back bent animal-like, like he wants to be on all fours, but he's pushing up and up. And so it was all about this reversal of shape, um, a freedom that was coming through just in releasing a curve. And uh, so I animated him turning in space so we could really see the back. And as he's lifting up and seeing, and, and I animated it. And then at a certain point, I realized there's something missing. What is it? And it's this spirit. Uh, and it started making wind come up and animating the beast's hair blowing. And then it turned into the prince. But it felt earned. Um, that, that's what I'm saying now. So I couldn't have said that then. But sure. Look back. I, I know I was looking for, for that. One of the things that you did was make the transformation about hands and feet because you didn't want to draw them. And so you went right for it. Yeah. What, what makes you do that where other people will avoid that thing? Why will you go into the lion's den that way? Something Ward Kimball once said, which I just thought was one of the most wonderful little treasures to hang on to was, um, he said, I can animate anything 
that I can take apart and put together. If I can take it apart and put it together, I can draw it. I, because he's saying, I can draw what I understand. Um, and I just thought, wow, that is such a wonderful key. Because before that, I kind of kept this running backlog of things that I knew how to draw in my head. Like, okay, I know how to draw a pretty girl's profile. I'm having a hard time doing a three-quarter pretty girl, but I can do a profile. I could do, uh, you know, I learned to draw a little kid with a big forehead. I, there was formula things that I had this kind of running list in my head until he said that. And I realized I just threw out that list. Uh, well, man, I can, I can do these other things. And what was so wonderful just before doing Beauty and the Beast, I had to do uh, Rescuers Down Under, where I was going to animate this eagle. And I'd never drawn a bird before. I mean, other than just a stupid little symbol of a bird. Right. But this was like deep, deep study of eagles and flying up to Idaho with uh, a man that had six golden eagles in his yard and huge acres that he had fenced in with or netted in. Um, and Morley Nelson's name was, and I applied all of that, something I did not know how to draw. And I did, I learned how to put it together. And, and then with the feet and the hands, um, that was the most expressive way of seeing a paw turn into a hand. And I, I remember grabbing <laughs> our basset hound um, and looking at her paws. Because it was like, okay, what the heck? What's a paw look like? You know, and learning, you know, how those pads were. And she's like, <laughs> like hold still. I got to animate this today. And... Figuring that out is, you know, so Beast is really a basset hound paw that turns into a hand. Uh, yeah, but that, that idea of Picasso, what he said, I'm always doing that, which I don't know how to do in order that I may learn how to do it, is I, I don't take that as just a, um, a nice saying. I, I let that be the calling card for the kind of things that I like. Over the moon, I knew nothing much about China. And when that was presented to me, it was like, yeah, I know nothing about that. My granddaughter, Olive, she comes running into the house um, and says, you should see the lizard I just saw. And she's just exploding with this blue neck. And, you know, she, she can't get the words out because she's communicating from the point of discovery. And when you have that burning thing, I mean, I know you know everything I'm talking about, Brian, that you you can't help but share it. It's mm -hmm. the best. But if you're kind of like old hat about something, you don't you don't have that fire, or you have to find that fire, the same right. fire. You know, I'm I'm sure, yeah. This is also something good about talking about things you love and you are familiar with. But you got to tap into that childhood discovery. Yeah, I think that's, yeah, that's a real thing, tapping into that. Talking about your eagle, uh, I really love, that's one of my favorite things. 
uh, of yours is that eagle. But I want to know what you, you say you learned uh, about eagles. What did you learn and how did it help you? I always think I'm going to learn something about how to draw. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> I never learned about how to draw. <laughs> but it's always that that's like the surface thing. How the heck am I going to draw this? Um, but it's never about that. It's always about a mystery that you don't understand yet, but that somebody else does. Um, with him, um, Morley was with all these eagles around him. But at a certain point, he had this um, owl on his arm, a big, big owl. And Morley's face was all these deep wrinkles and this intensity, kind of like a crazy man. Um, I guess you got to be a little crazy to be living with eagles that are imprinted. They think they you are their mate, you know, as they thought with Morley. And uh, he's got this owl and it's big talons and if you've ever gotten close to an owl with those eyes that are huge just looking straight at you and and he's saying birds of prey <laughs> and he's laughing as he's talking about they're they're the lions of the air i mean they they know no equal and he's just like so intense about them um and I, I just, I was videotaping him. And when I left, uh, I really didn't learn anything about how to draw an eagle, but I learned about Morley's passion for eagles. And I came back with this, I want to know, I want to feel what he feels in this bird. I want to animate a lion of the air. Um, what is that? And with that spark, then I went in and started to learn the things that I did know about human anatomy is just the same as it's a variation on a theme of eagles. And so I would, uh, in order to have, have the eagle fly, I remember we were building a house and we had our, our, we were in a trailer on the property and, um, before going into work, it's always just before going into work, uh, I needed to animate this eagle taking off. And I studied enough to know, okay, if I can act it out myself, then I can just use and transpose the length of the bones of my arms. And I'd learned that an eagle's feathers, the primaries are five feathers, just like your your hands and the the ulna feather is your is your thumb and even eagles feathers were made of the same substance as your fingernails this was all like the angels were singing and so i got linda to lay on the ground with a video camera and i stood on a chair and i started flapping my arms and i'd been studying how birds take off and that was all kind of all, all observation material there. Then, so I just did me and printed those images out, transposed that into the eagle, and that eagle taking off. That's that's me. And so everything else, um, 
I felt like it was me flying. I mean, I really enjoyed the idea of flight through through all of that. Um, and it was a study of it. And that all prepared me for going in with the beast and studying buffaloes and bears and wolves and tails. And, and then when it came into the human hands, man, I was just on such a roll of observation that I, I was not afraid of that anymore. Huh. One of the things when I'm creating, when I'm working on a character, there's this little tape in my head and I'm always asking, how do I make them live? How do I make them live? You know, when, when your character is just words on paper, there's something you have to bring to the table that makes that character um, a living being in the minds of people who are reading that script or, or whatever. I, I talked to uh, Frank Oz a little bit about this because Frank has this way of, you know, he creates these iconic characters like Bert and Yoda and Fozzie Bear and Miss Piggy and, and they, there's something he's tapping into in himself. Uh, there's something he's not, he's not afraid to trust his impulses. Um, in fact, he doesn't, he says he doesn't want to know anything. He just wants to leap into the abyss, but he wants to have enough craft, right? So he trusts that leap into the abyss. And you have uh, a similar thing. You, you've created iconic characters, same as him. They're very alive to people. Is there something that you think you're doing or bringing to that to make those characters live in the minds of people who watch them? Or did they need to live for you and then that's what does it? Well, I do think of, of um, this idea of, of a character coming to life for me uh, is a Searching for the spark. Um, and I'm usually frustrated at the beginning of something because all I can think of is what's been done before. And, um, sort of a process of like, no, 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 no. What is it? How do I? And you kind of get to that place of, Unfortunately, I always get to the place of frustration where it's not. I mean, I could. I could take what's in my head there, like things I've seen and felt and learned in the past and do it that way. There's always like a really clear way. You could get the thing done quickly and get it out of the way. It's never one. That to be your attitude, is it? Creator, once you start down that path, your career's gonna get pretty dry. What do you mean? When you can you can you explain that a little bit? Yeah. So there's this moment where, um, well, I guess maybe I can just talk a little bit about computer animation. Um, that you may have an idea that's already sparked and you want to follow it and there's something really unique in that. Um, but it's like really, really hard to get. 
the computer will always give you the easy path. And it's like a used car salesman. Go on the lot to buy something very specific and they don't have it, but they got this. This is being really nice. Don't you think? Look at the nice color. And, and suddenly you're driving something off that you never really wanted. And that's what computer animation does all the time. Or even hand drawn animation, creativity. It's always offering you the simple path to get out of it. I don't want to say the simple, the easy path. Mm-hmm. Um, Simplicity is actually something you do want to fight for. But um, it's the, uh, the, I always get to this point of frustration where I can't, uh, can't figure it out. And if you follow that path and just take the easy way out, your career, I think, will stagnate. And, and I've seen it in so many, many, many people. Um, I never wanted to be that. I don't want to be that. Um, so I would always say no. But then there was always this deadline <laughs> squeezing in. And it was like heat. Just the heat is getting hotter and hotter. And ideas are, you know, like those sequoias that only they have to have a fire burn through it before poof, the seeds open up. And unfortunately, that's how it is. But the thing that usually happens for me because I'm so insecure about what other people think of me and everything like that. I, um, I say no to ideas because it's, it's just me. You know, it's like, that's always the spark though. It's this little, little thing like in over the moon, Fei Fei, having her be with her parents by the water at the beginning of the movie and it's his family together and um and i'm i'm just, i keep drawing them and trying to create the truth of a family together um and it, i i must have done a thousand drawings of them but i was noticing the way all of my granddaughter would would sit and she just has this ability to fold her knees her knees go and her feet go back and she's just flat on the ground. And I was just like, that is so cool. And I got, I got to, I've got to do that with Fei Fei and, and just drawing that suddenly it was like a little fire that just spread over every, it was truth and it was truth in seemingly unimportant area of the way a little girl's hips and knees have that flexibility and but it spread everywhere in the drawing and affected the the dad sitting there and the mom and and i've i've seen this again and again and again it's it's a little tilt of a wrist that feels fake and then suddenly you turn it just a little bit and the angels sing and and then it kind of just goes over the rest of the character and uh, I find that's, that's so important that you find the something personal. I think it's about something that you value, something from you personally, some discovery, something real that you think is, oh, that's kind of dumb. That's, that's not so important. And yet the whole thing is built on that one tiny unimportant little thing. And again and again and again and again, that's been for me 
the key to animating is there's always some little spark moment that is the open door for me. So, yeah. Oh, so when you have a character who, um, like Eric, how much of you is in Ariel and, and what parts of you are in Ariel? Um, how do you get inside the skin of a character like that? Very different from you in a lot of ways. Um, or maybe not. What, what, what's your way into a character like that? Um, you know, the, the beast, I can sort of see easier. I can see you doing that easier than I can see more easily than I can see you doing Ariel. Well, it's um, interesting when Ron and John were writing the script, um, I remember Ron said, so Glenn, uh, we wrote Ariel thinking of you. I, I wasn't doing Ariel. At the, I was supposed to do Ursula. He said, but Ariel is really you um, because you've always got this pos- positive view that everything is possible. Like, the, you know, I'm sure it's probably the irritating part of me, but it's also the part that they loved. And, um, that is you. I will. Yeah. <laughs> that is you. So I, um, I heard that and I said, that's really cool. That's really cool. But I'm doing the, I do big villainous characters by, you know, I hadn't done anything like that, like Ariel. And, um, but when I, I saw, Jody Benson um, sing part of your world. And it was, it wasn't just hearing her sing it, it was seeing her sing it. Um, and, and how much she put herself in that space and how Howard Ashman came in and whispered to her, like, no, no, you're not singing for the auditorium here. People in the back row, we're not worried about this. This is not you performing for theater. This is you in your own little bedroom. This is in the, the grotto, and it's just you. And, and it was so big, he's whispering to her. And, and he turns off the lights, and, and then Jody sings this. And, and I was, I felt what she felt, and I, I so identified with that and it felt like there was such fire and power in that much bigger than the big characters that I was doing, that it was, it was really inside and that I I could not, I couldn't let that go. And I saw, I went and talked to Ron and John and said, I have to do Ariel. So, uh, okay. But, like, can you draw a pretty girl? I mean, it was like, she'd been doing these big characters and Radigan and stuff. And I said, no, yeah, no, I've been drawing Linda, my wife, you know, for 10 years by that point. Um, yeah, I can do this. I, I know I can do this. It was more that I, I wasn't saying that I can do it because I knew I could. I kind of didn't know if I could, but it was more like, I have to, I have to, to do this. Um, and so they gave me that opportunity and, uh, animating desire is for me a really, really big essential part 
animating what it's animating the need in a character that's going to drive them through impossible things. Um, that calls to me. Um, and I, I read that in the script of Over the Moon with Fei-Fei. I certainly felt it with the Beast. I mean, I remember there's one moment in Beauty and the Beast, one area that I think I failed in with the Beast, uh, and it was such an important part to fail in. <laughs> it was where he, he's, go, he's got to decide to let Belle go or not, to keep her there. And he's, because she wants to see her father. And now, you know, he loves her. Um, but will he let her go free knowing that his time will run out and he will be a beast forever when he knows that she is falling in love with him and the curse could be broken? Is he going to let her go or is he going to tell her, well, I need you here because let me explain this curse. And he does. And, and so he's struggling with all of this stuff going on. And I was trying to animate those thoughts in Beast's head, in his mind. Um, and he's, he's looking at the flower and I'm just praying that somehow in these drawings, I could communicate this to the audience. And I felt like I never did. I never, I never really could. I wanted to. I was animating that desire. Um, but, I think there's something stronger, maybe even than just pure desire. And that is admission of total helplessness. And I did not animate that. Um, but mm. when I watched the live action film, the actor, I forget who it was, it was Doom Beast. This that that moment where he's struggling, he's looking down, and finally, and he 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 looks up, and as soon as he did, I was like, oh, that's what I was looking for. I needed to animate a prayer. I needed to animate helplessness. I I don't have it in me to to do this. Yeah, it, it was. It was a kind of a wonderful moment because I saw it was like, yes, wow, that's that's it. You know? There's something you bring. There's a spark that you bring. And maybe it's because you think so much from the inside as opposed to the outside of the character. It's almost like the drawing is a means to an end. Is that true? Yeah, I mean, it, Frank and Ollie... Well, I just remember Ollie really, really hammering this into me that... Glenn, don't animate what the character's doing. Animate what the character's thinking and feeling. And um, not really understanding that. I mean, intellectually, but not really understanding it emotionally, experientially until later. And him telling me, I'm telling you things, Glenn, that he must have seen it in my eyes, that it was like a tennis ball bouncing off a concrete wall. And he's just giving me the secret of life here. And I was, I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. And then he says, I'm telling you things that you don't understand right now. Um, but, you know, in 10 years, 
20 years, you'll begin to really know what it is I'm talking about. Um, and it was, it was like, you know, 10, 20 years later that I, I mean, I feel like I'm still just getting it now. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that, that advice I have given to so many, many, many people, but I, I'm also kind of desperate that they can't, I can't wait 10 years. It has to be in this movie now. We need you to understand this. Right. Uh, so one of the things that was really incredibly helpful for me on over the moon was, um, I had a conversation with Sasha Capuchimpanga, our head of the animation department up at Sony. Um, and I'm thinking, how can I get control over so many animators to bring a consistent vision of who that is to everybody? Um, cause I wasn't going to be animating. So I'm going to rely on them. But if we had a, like in Little Mermaid, I had, um, Sherry Stoner come in and we filmed her as an actress that I could have other animators use as reference. And I said, Sasha, I think we, sh- we should really have a actress come in for our reference and we can film her acting these moments. So there's a common, uh, ground for everybody. And it's not an inconsistency with Fei And he said, um, and Sasha's just the best person to work with. He's so, heartfelt himself and sensitive and really, really, uh, flexible and humble. But he resisted the, <laughs> the temptation to say, sure. Yeah. Okay. Glenn. Instead, he said, Glenn, I really think we should not do what you are suggesting. I really think that we should have the each animator film themselves playing that moment um, because the only way I think you can get this kind of performance you're looking for is for them to feel it. And they're going to do something that comes from inside them. And that's, what's going to be up on the screen. I, I just thought, gosh, he just addressed everything that Ollie was saying, you know, that it's got to come from the inside. you how else can you know what a character is feeling if you don't feel it yourself? Right. And that we, we could cut together a live action version of Over the Moon with all of these different animators, uh, beyond a hundred of them, uh, playing these different moments. They are hilarious, wonderful because they, they're all counter type. I mean, they don't look like the characters are playing. Big tall guys being little bungee or, uh, you know, a woman who's playing Gobi or they're all, it was so wonderful. And so they would film different versions of themselves. And then we would talk about the parts that were so right and why, why it kind of lost its steam here. And, but this little performance here, and we could put those together and sometimes they would, need to go and do it again. Um, sometimes they would film somebody else that could really pick that up. Mm-hmm. That was so important in the performance. You told me once, uh, because I, I'm these impulses that you are able to follow, um, 
are interesting to me. So you told me once that you were working on Aladdin, but the next movie you had uh, to do was Pocahontas, mm-hmm. and you and you couldn't um, you couldn't figure out what Pocahontas was going to look like. Yeah. Well, there's you're working on something all the time. You know how this is, Brian. That you've got. I'm, I'm sure you're working on creative problems when you are taking photos of flowers, uh, and you're looking for design and, and it, it comes into everything that you, the way you are even conducting this little conversation we're having is like, it's about appreciating something that you are discovering and you're hearing it from me. It's just a great way you are. Um, and the creative process is like that. Uh, it, it, the ideas are, are coming up, um, when you are not expecting it. Um, so I'm in, in the middle of animating Aladdin. And I know that Pocahontas is coming. Maybe it's, it's kind of the last third of the movie. And I've got this shot. And I really like the way the drawing is going with Aladdin. Um, Nick Ranieri, one of the other animators, came in and said, um, so I hear you're going to go on to uh, work on Aladdin. Uh, you're going to do the character Aladdin. I said, yeah. Well, did you figure out what he's going to look like yet? It's <laughs> like, No. Like, no, I, I don't know what, but, but I realized, oh, I had been thinking when somebody act, actually asks you, it happened with the bees and it happened with Pocahontas. When somebody asks you that, you don't think you know, but you actually do know. Um, cause I, I said, well, okay, I've been noticing Native American faces, uh, and Asian faces and, and trying to understand the simplicity of that face because it's, it's very not Freddie Moore or Little Mermaid, which was kind of the Disney style. So I, I drew for Nick. I said, well, this is basically the design right here. And I drew Superman's shield and drew the S on it right on the paper that I just was working with Aladdin, which was pretty stupid. I should have put another sheet down, but I drew it on that one. And I said, so I, it's going to be like this. And, and so that I started to turn, he left the office. Um, I'm sure thinking, Hmm, okay, well, it's going to look like Superman's shield. But then I started to draw her in there and, um, and she just took over the drawing and Aladdin was like disappearing. And now it was all about Pocahontas. And, uh, then I had this dilemma, like, Oh, do I erase this Pocahontas or well, I went, I made a copy of it and, um, yeah, I think I did end up erasing that, but I had a copy of it so that I, I could design her and continue after that. So there is this place, there's this time, um, of searching for the reality of what you're looking for and, a design of a character, say, for example, um, and that you may have come up with 600 versions of it. Um, 
and other people are coming in, looking at it, and going, uh, so what's wrong with that one? Like, you know, I don't know. It's a nice drawing. It's like, yeah, that's, that's going to be really good. It's like, no, no, that, that can't be her or that can't be the beast. And, um, and that's how it, that's how it went for me. And then finally, the character as you're drawing suddenly appears out of the page and you recognize them. It's this weird thing that they seem to exist before you draw them. And all I can compare it to, this is such a bizarre, bizarre experience. All I can compare it to is dreaming and something is happening in your dream that uh, leads up to a sound that you wake up to and you hear the sound and everything in your dream was being built for a sound that never could have been predicted in your dream. Like, how did I, what? How did I know that doorbell was going to ring and that person coming up and there's, it's this weird reality of like a dream that you suddenly wake up from and, and, and you knew it all along. I don't know how else to explain it. I, I, I felt that I've heard other people, I've heard composers talk about how the song is there. They're just discovering. They're just, it's, it's sometimes I think why creative people can come up with similar ideas at a similar time is because I think we're all antenna. I think that's part of being an artist. Um, and a creative person is being an antenna. What's going on in the world? What's going on around me? What's going on? And taking it and distilling it. And so, um, I don't think that that's necessarily conscious. But I think that's what we do. And so, um, I think it really does feel like it's coming out of nowhere, but you're really in this process, process of distillation where it's like, I'm going to distill it down to this. And, and you don't know that. I wanted to talk about simplicity and that's part of it. I think that when it's complicated, it's not quite there. It's when you can get it to that essence. That's the thing. Going, going back to Frank Oz, um, he said something interesting about the creation of Bert. He said, um, Bert was a boring puppet. Um, he, he's like, what am I going to do with this puppet? He's boring. He, you know, Ernie had hands. Bert had kind of, you know, didn't have hands and, and, um, he was this kind of weird, dull color and Ernie was a more fun color. So he thought, well, what if I just make him boring? I'll just make him the most boring person, the most boring character. Um, so he leaned into it and created this full, full on character. And I think that knowing that, oh, he's just going to be a boring guy took away all the complications, all the things you could go, you know, and then everything sprung from that. So. He's like, his favorite color is gray. You know, all these things. He's just like, just knowing I'm going to make the most boring character I can was enough of a distillation for him to create a whole character. Um, I think that's the process that we all go through. Um, this, that's why it feels like a, a discovery, I think, because you, that's the thing you discover and then everything comes out of it. That's yeah, that, that, concept 
uh, is so wonderful when you suddenly realize the value of the very thing you were fighting suddenly becomes like the coin just flips like oh, oh, right. this is so i remember there was a character um uh in great mouse detective that was called basil of baker street at the time but dr dawson who's going to be watson john musker and ryan clements are it's just a genius and i'm not sure i think it may have been john's idea but dr dawson was uh the most boring character the most um bland opposite of basil who was this furious mind and frenetic energy and discovering and and Dr. Dobson was the most, he didn't move at all, and he was just this big round blob. Um, and, but the women, uh, just found him irresistible. All oh, these, these other characters and, and Basil could not understand what this magnetic attraction was. And so they just played, it was, it was such, it was so genius. Um, but management just didn't get it. It was kind of a wonderful idea that was beyond where Disney was at that moment. Mm-hmm. But I, I love what you're saying there about the, the thing that you think is the problem is really the, the solution. Yeah. It often is. It, it often it's it's a strange thing, but it, it's like, oh, should I not fight this? It's it's um, you. What you've been doing is cutting against the grain, but when you go with the grain, mm-hmm. it's interesting how how much easier it becomes and how much it's not you. It's it's this is what it wants to be. Yeah. Why am I fighting it? It wants to be this. Yeah, I wrote somewhere. Uh, during this over the moon that the problem is the solution put that on my desk um i had a uh um the lunar rover um was from clep which is the space agency in china and they were asking you could is there a place that you could have the lunar rover you know in the movie and, um, and, you know, at a certain point, I said, oh, yeah, no, we can do that. And then I had to live with those words. <laughs> any time we added, any place I added it, was it was wrong. Mm-hmm. It, it was always wrong. And it took the audience like, what the heck is that? Why is that? And if you don't, if you don't give them something to think about, like why that's there, they'll invent stuff. So that was like. Oh, Chang is spying on Feifei, or there's like anytime that lunar rover, there's adding to it. So there was only one way of working with it, and that was making it a cent, just putting it in the central position of like meeting Gobi. He's got, he rides in on this thing that be- wasn't there before, but it was the only thing way I could play it was have it be center screen and not be peripherally uh just off in the distance a designer uh i know she uh she's a costume designer and she said um 
to me once, well, if you can't hide it, keep it. <laughs> Which I, I, I have found to be true. And uh, I had never put it in words, but I had found it to be true. And it was just a nice way that I don't know where she learned it. But if you can't hide it, hide it, feature it, it made a lot of sense to me. Yeah, that's even a better way because that's exactly what what this was, the solution. The problem was the solution and it added a lot to bringing Gobi in and yeah. Yeah. You mentioned simplicity. I talk about simplicity a lot. It's really hard to explain the power of simplicity to people who, especially if they're not very experienced or they're younger, um, they tend to want to make things more complicated. They think the more work they show, the better things are. Um, it's sort of like when I, when I was a, a kid drawing and I thought my drawings aren't very realistic, right? Um, more ribs, more bones. More yeah. Muscles. Yeah. More stuff. Um, it seems to be almost a symptom of being a young creative person is that you think the more stuff you put on, the better it is. Mm -hmm. Um, what, how do you find simplicity useful? Well, I think imposed simplicity is never true. Um, and I, I, I really react negatively. To what I see as really dominantly in animation today is imposed simplicity that feels uh, so tiresome. Can you, can you ex explain what you mean by that? Imposed simplicity. Yeah. It's like from the outside, you look at it and go, okay, well, that feels complex. Let's just take lines out. Okay. We don't need these extra lines. Let's just simplify it. Um, and, uh, yeah, okay, less lines on the nose. Uh, let's just make the torso doesn't have to have all those extra shapes. We'll just make it simple. And, uh, and so everything looks the same. Um, and it's an imposed exterior, no more pencil mileage. It'll be easier to animate. That's all imposed simplicity. Sure. But, Real simplicity actually happens out of necessity. Uh, you discover it by the work of carrying like all of this design baggage when you start on your journey of animating a character. You, you don't know. I might need this. Oh, I need that flashlight. We're going to go out to the woods. Oh, I got to have my axe. But what about my charger? Oh, has it on? Do I need a charger? Well, yeah, actually, I get a battery. Okay, I'll get a little generator. I can, and pretty soon you're carrying stuff and fishing poles and pots and pans. And, and ultimately, though, along the journey, you realize I don't need this. And it's just from the sheer weight of it that you drop it off. It's Maybe it's not a very intelligent way of living, but I find I live that way in animating. Um that it's in the drawing of it and 24 drawings per second or 12 shot twice. Um, you just for sheer necessity find, okay. Yeah. There's those really cool little design things I got there, but just, I'll just do that one little angle on her nose. I'll just draw her nose that way because I know there's these interesting little curves and everything. Pretty soon those things just simplify down 
and they did it, but you haven't left behind the value of why you fell in love with some little arc on the nose that there's because of the bone, this joint point here now has just become a very delicate little curve. But you remembered why you broke that angle there. Now it's just a soft little angle. And for everybody that follows you, you tell them when they leave off that little curve because they can barely see it, but it was important to you because it's a remnant of, of structure that you go back and you go, okay, no, actually a skull has this little bone here and that nose, if you just give a little suggestion there, that's important. And it, there's truth to it. And every, every design that you work on is always much more complex, but it's based on observation and study. And then you get to the simplification of it all. It's a process that you don't impose it from the outside. It has to go through this process of going back to nature, going back, learning, and discovering one more time. Look at a child's face. What is it about a child's face that's so mesmerizing? Why is it? There's... How how do lips shape? I've fallen in love with the corners of the mouth. Uh, CG simplifies. They pinch. <laughs> mouth talks. But I found myself noticing in Leyendecker's paintings the dark corners of a mouth um, as if you can look into beyond the surface, the teeth go back and you can see this little curve there. And it's, I can see it in you right now. I can see the dark corners and the teeth go back. And, and so then I was thinking, Oh, it's this wonderful curve of the upper lip rolls and the lower lip rolls out. And it's this curve, even though it might feel like a point, it's not a point. It's curved, and we got to design that. So the whole time, if I watch over the moon, I am watching the corners of Fei-Fei's mouth the whole time. Uh-huh. And that's, oh, that's complex. Yeah. Yeah, it's complex, but that little complexity tells you that her face the the skin is round and it rolls in. And if you impose like a simple pinch, you just you just flattened all of that. And and suddenly the character's not soft. You don't want to touch them. I mean, I always feel like the characters you should feel like you want to hold them in some way. Um nobody wants to touch and hold a flat thing. Uh or put your arms around it and hurt. Uh, I actually want to talk to you about appeal. I was trying to explain to an illustrator I was working with the concept of appeal. He had no idea what I meant. And he seemed to think that that was just um, a completely subjective thing. Hmm. Um, that 
well, I find it appealing and you don't, you know, I, but it is a thing. And what, what do you find makes things appealing? What is that? How is it not? How is it not uh, a subjective thing? Right. I mean, yeah. what was it that Freddie Moore could do that made his work appealing or, you know, um, what do you think you do maybe that you learned from him or somewhere else that makes things appealing? Yeah. I, well, Freddie Moore had it naturally and I found, I found it by, um, taking his animation and he would, that was, I think it was a film, Nifty nineties and Mickey, um, was raking. No, that's a little whirlwind and he was raking and I took one pose and then I found the next pose where he's raking. And then I would guess what the next pose was, but I wouldn't look at it. And I, it was as close as I could get to be having him then draw over top of my drawing and correct me because I would guess and I would draw it and I, okay, I got it. And then I put his over it and I'd flip it. And it was like, oh, oh, wow. I thought I was understanding, but I wasn't. And it was the proximity of shapes that he did not animate. He animated, um, the design elements, uh, were always in harmony in the perfect little position, like Mickey's hands. If you are not experienced in appeal, um, you will draw Mickey's arms way too long and the hands go way out because they're attached to a shoulder, to an elbow, to a wrist. And then by the time you get to the hand, it's a big, long, snaky thing. But Freddie Moore was just animating the head and the hands were just in the right spot. And then afterwards, he would throw in where the arms needed to be. Those those important notes, like musical notes, they're in harmony. Um, and I, I really got that because everything I was doing felt like lakey and weird, um, unrelated. Um, at one point, I, I, I noticed that when I was talking to Linda, my wife, um, you know, I'd be talking to her and and her eyes would drift off and then she would stand up and walk to the other end of the room and then just straighten the picture and then come back. And, uh, I realized that she had a sense of order and harmony and everything. She just is gifted three dimensionally that way. And I thought, um, this was uh, during Tangled and I was thinking specifically about appeal and, portions and and so uh, at breakfast um we were she got up from the table and there was a salt shaker a pepper shaker and a um sugar bowl there and they were of different sizes the pepper was taller the salt was a little shorter and the sugar bowl was round and um and when she got up and left i took the those three elements and I made them all equidistant, perfectly symmetrical, equidistant. I did that because I knew in figure drawing class 
the biggest problem, everybody comes in and they always take asymmetry and bring symmetry into it. And this is the kiss of death. Um, we, we take tilts of the shoulders and the hips and, and life is all about asymmetry and tension and, um, one thing is closer than another. Anyway, so Linda came back and sat down and she's talking to me and just without even <laughs> changing her, she didn't even look at it. She just went and just pushed the, the pepper closer to the salt. And that was enough. Just, I said, why did you do that? So why did you do what? You just moved. We were just in the middle of talking to something else, but you moved that pepper shaker next to the salt shaker. Why? I did. I said, yeah, you just did that. Why? I, I, it's just, I don't know. It's, it's better. It just feels right. <laughs> Why are you so weird? <laughs> you know, it was like, I, and again and again in Tangled and Over the Moon and everything I've done, I noticed that the distance of the eyes to the nose to the mouth uh, in animation Everybody will drop that mouth a little lower so that it's about the same distance almost from the nostrils to the eyes. I mean, not this is not a rule, but I found I mean, it must have been a thousand times over in this movie. I just said, uh, you need to make that distance between the upper lip and the nose. Just tighten it a little bit. There, there, yeah, that looks, and suddenly the characters look, oh, so much better. They're really appealing. And it's just little things like that. But it's, I, I really do think of it as like the notes of a chord. They just feel right. And you get one of those notes off and it says something different. Um, you can stretch it longer. I mean, everything is possible, but, um, the closer you get to a, a very mm, subtle face, like in some ways subtle, like Pepe. Um, those little things make a huge difference. Ah. I once heard from um, our mutual friend, uh, Kara Leothmaki, that you said, I think you said it to her, um, or maybe it was an interview, but I think that you said at one point that you were the best book you read on animation was Michael Jordan's autobiography. It wasn't Michael Jordan's. It was Magic Johnson. Oh, was it Magic? Okay. Magic Johnson. That's how much I know about uh, basketball right there. Uh, 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 but I find that really fascinating because I learn from other crafts. I take a lot from other crafts. I look at illustrators to figure out how to write better. I, you know, I, I'm always looking at other craft people. A lot of people don't know how to transfer that. So they ha it has to be very direct for a lot of people. Um, it doesn't have to be direct for me at all. I can listen to a musician and I understand story better when they talk about creating music. Um, what did you learn from that autobiography about animation? And what other crafts do you learn from? that inform your craft. Yeah, that's such a big thing. I mean, I, I certainly learned a lot um, from Kobe um, because Kobe was always going outside of 
basketball for learning and applying it to the game. And at one point he called John Williams. And I guess if you're Kobe, you can call anybody. And <laughs> he called John Williams because he wanted to learn about composing uh, a score and how, how he thought about storytelling and composing a score, but not to tell a story except for the fact that a game to him was like a story and you needed to have a structure to it. And so he listened and he, for an hour and a half, two hours, John Williams talked to him about composing and he came back and he, he took Beethoven's fifth and uh, I forget which of the championship games he, he had that in his head about the pace of the game and where it would change and how he would uh, move into a different level using the fifth in his head. Um, and that was, that was our first conversation I had with Kobe the first day I met him because I was talk telling him about Beethoven's ninth and how I'd animated like Beast Transformation to Beethoven's ninth and how that's always been a big thing for me. And um, I think you and I have talked about that as well. And, but he, his greatest strength was not his athletic ability. It was that he was learning constantly from every other avenue. He was just an amazing mind. And, and I don't know, is it that amazing that we are humble enough to think that we have a lot to learn from somebody else? I mean, that's, that's a childlike mind, I think. Yeah, well, I think that that's, um, I've seen that consistently with people who are at the top of their job. Yeah. That they are um, very interested in learning. I've told, you've probably heard it on the the other version of this podcast where I talk about August Wilson and uh, the uh, John yeah. Coltrane thing, mm -hmm. where, uh, you know, August was always asking, um, what can you teach me? Uh, of people you would think, you know, you, you figure you got two Pulitzers, you, you probably know what you're doing, but that's not the way he was. He was always searching. And I've seen that over and over again with people at the top of the craft, any craft. Such um, an encouraging example. Um, the thing, one thing that I really learned from that book on Magic Johnson, I learned a lot. I mean, it's, I've got writing all over the book. Um, and it came at a time where we had done Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, and Aladdin. Um, and there was this enormous success. Uh, and there's something that happens in us when you have success that it's a curse and a blessing. I remember Max, my son, saying, Dad, you got a maid. You, you've already proven yourself. Um, now you can do anything you want. I said, oh, Max, it's so not that way. It's like you have it made because you, everything is possible. The expectations aren't on you. Um, you are free to just be you, you know, and, yeah. um, and you, you have, that's, that's a real true test, I think, of a person's character's success. And anyway, um, what I found so fascinating with Magic Johnson is that in high school, he was 
a phenomenal player and he always got the ball uh, because the coach told everybody, whatever, wherever you are, get the ball to magic because he'll score and we will win. And um, magic said that, you know, after this one championship in high school, uh, all the parents were coming in, uh, picking up their kids and um, congratulating them, congratulating him on the game. He said, but no one looked him in the eye. The parents would say, hey, hey great game, Magic. That was really amazing. Um, and then they would walk off with their kids. And and he, he realized that there was no joy in winning if it wasn't with everybody else. Um, and that those parents weren't celebrating together with him and it was not the way he wanted to play. So the next season when the coach said, okay, we are now, you know, setting those rules again to get him as a center point to get the ball to him. He, um, he spent all of his time after practice working with those players on getting them used to passing the ball and that he was just going to focus on passing the ball to everybody else. And he became, that's what he was really known for is his amazing teamwork and passing the ball, getting the ball to the people. He was still really good, but it was about everybody else. And I just thought, this is the way animation needs to be. Um, it, it cannot be about one person. It's got to be about everybody rising up, mentoring, teaching, lecturing, giving as much as you can. Um, that's, that's what this needs to be about. I, I was just so inspired by that. Huh. Is there, um, you talked about going to museums. I'm just wondering where you go, where you go to fill up. I feel like there are times, depends on what I'm working on. If I'm working on something, sometimes I need to find a very specific thing that relates to that. And sometimes I just need to look at things of quality. Mm. That makes sense. I, I'll, I'll have to, uh, if I'm writing a script, I'll, I'll have to watch a lot of really well constructed films. It doesn't matter what they are. They just have to be um, well constructed because that's what they have in common. It doesn't matter what's on the surface. I don't care if it's a western or a sci-fi. I don't care. All I care about is, does it all work together? Talking about harmony, does it all is it all a piece of a whole? Does it all go together? Um, and then I find that it is much easier to to let that come through me when I'm working. Hmm. Um, I also trust it because I have all these examples of it working, right? So it's like, I know this works. I've seen it work, you know, 10 times this week uh, in these classic things that have lasted forever. So I know it works and it gives me a kind of um, confidence and it gives me a kind of clarity. And that's one of the ways that I, um, I fill up. Um, another one is just going out and taking pictures every day or, um, looking at art books or whatever. What do you do to, to, I know you use your family a lot, in your work, like you were talking about, uh, but I, I, I've heard you talk about that before. Uh, 
what else do you do to fill up? Like, I'm, I'm really concerned with this idea of the, the blank page and, and, and what do you do to fill up so that that blank page isn't so blank or so scary or whatever? Yeah, it's interesting. Blank page is really not blank. It's a mirror. You're the one that's blank. <laughs> Looking at it, like, that's just a mirror of what's going on. And if it's blank, fill it up with something that matters. So, like, going to China for me was so wonderful because I knew nothing really about it. Um, and, and surrounding myself with people that I felt like I was going to learn from. Uh, but I, I really do feel like there is a living out of something when I was 18 years old that I was afraid of. Like my parents gave each one of the kids, um, a, uh, a chance to go to Europe, you know, with a, a tour group and you know, travel through different countries and you come home and, uh, your life is richer and, and when they gave when my turn came graduating, um, that scared me. Like, wait, I don't speak French. I don't, what am I, what am I going to do if I, I don't, I said, can I just get the money? Can you just give me the money for that? Whatever you're going to pay. And, uh, they said, no. well, you don't want to go. I said, oh, no, not really. I, I was just sort of like nervous about it. And so I took the money and I bought the family car that would have been given to me anyway. It was the stupidest choice I'd ever made in my life. Um, but now when there's something that feels like, wow, I know nothing about that. That's like one of the signs that lean into it, go towards that. Um, like costume design. I know nothing about sewing. I know nothing about fabrics. I find shopping with Linda the most boring thing in the world. The best thing is I got my sketchbook and I can draw everybody there. And I know I've got an inordinate amount of time of sitting there while she's shopping. So that's good. But costume design, Guo Pei is this unbelievable Chinese costume designer that um, it was suggested maybe she would be good to work with her in designing Chang'e's costumes. And she had a, it just happened that across the street from Sony at the Vancouver Art Museum, they had this big exhibit, Guo Pei, and her, all of her dresses and everything are there. And I don't know if you're familiar with any of her work, but it is, just crazy, amazing fabric and design and shapes. And it was, it'd be as if Kandinsky uh, was a costume designer or something. Um, and so I met her. She didn't speak a word of English. I didn't speak a word of Chinese. Um, but her husband spoke English. And so, you know, we we're very polite and we were talking. And, and I noticed that, uh, Guo Pei would, would talk like really fast, just talking, 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 talking. Her hands are gesturing. And her husband said, well, she says she really loves animation. 
It's like, that's, I know that's not what she, I know there's more than that. Uh, it's because she was so expressive. And finally, at about halfway through, um, uh, her husband got up to leave to go whatever, have lunch or something. So we spent the next hour just talking English and Chinese together. But really, we didn't do that. It was drawing. We both drew together and uh, some watercolors and the paper was never big enough for her. So I added more paper and we sketched together and her hand movement. And it was the most wonderful thing, like knowing inside how important this was going to be for the film, willing every learning neuron in my being to open up, open up listen, watch, learn. I have no idea what she's saying, but I am never going to forget the gestures of her hands and talking about silk. And and I knew how far she searched worldwide for the best silk and knowing that in CG, we could, we could invent physics and create super silk. And um, And I had gotten that at point across through her husband. But so... I remembered how her hands were were moving and um, when it came time to animate in the Chamber of Exquisite Sadness and we're animating Chang'e's silk floating, um, it was her hands um, that were in my head um, and drawing over the animation. So they felt like those patterns of her movement. And um, I love just leaning into something entirely new and working with her, oh, there's such joy in that. I, I, I'm not sure I'm answering your question. That's it's, okay. I'm leaning into things that I, I don't know much about. Well, that's interesting because, again, going back, it's kind of how this started was this idea that you that you do that. Like, you know, um, I read Art and Fear because you read Art and Fear and you said that you... Uh, I don't know if you still do, but we'd read it before you did any project and give it to people that you're working with. Mm-hmm. What is it about that book and, and why do you find it valuable and why do you think it would be valuable to other people to read that book? I'm glad you brought that up. I think it's so valuable and everybody listening should get art and fear because the one thing we all have in common is that we're afraid that if everybody knew how much we're faking it, we'd be booted out of here. I mean, I more than anybody feel this way. Um, and I, I think it's a healthy thing to have that, that feeling. And this book, Art and Fear, focuses on the word fear in art making. Um, it's about the perils of art making that, we all share a a sense that we are not equipped to really do what we are called to do, what we are desiring to do. And that's all part of the joy of it is that we, yes, we're not equipped, but you are equipped with an amazing soul and spirit and gift to learn, to grow. And it, it'll be through talking to John Williams, if you're Kobe, or talking to your neighbor about growing tomatoes, 
or it'll be something really simple and real in your life that you will apply to it and that you will read and listen. I think it's about being open. Um, that openness is really a humble thing and art and fear, um, through so many different examples of people in the creative arts, um, you find that you are not alone. Um, the thing that stops us is that we feel like we don't deserve to be where what we're trying to do that somebody else does. That person's better. I felt that so much when I got to Disney. Everybody knew about Disney. I knew nothing about Disney. Um, they knew all the names. They knew Freddie Moore. They knew, and everybody would get together at lunch and they would all talk and, um, just talk about animation. And I just felt like such an idiot. Like I didn't fit in. Um, but I did remember my dad said, Glenn, I'm a cartoonist. You're an artist. And, and nobody was really talking about art at the table. Um, they were talking about animation. Mm -hmm. But Walt Disney had a uh, little library. Uh, and they were all classic art artists. Because um, he personally, in order to be able to do a film like Bambi, he had to bring those artists to see themselves as artists and to study anatomy. And um, so I would just go up and spend so much time going up into that library and just pulling out a book on Modigliani or um, the track. And, and then I would go home and I would do my pastels of Linda. Like it was, she was a Degas model and and i and i guess i you know brian i always felt like i had one foot out of animation and it's been a good thing i've never felt like i was an animator always felt like well maybe maybe someday i'll find my calling i'll just you know i don't know there's I know there's something wonderful out there, and so I'm leaning into it, expecting it to be. Like even now, the pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, at one point in Over the Moon, Fei Fei says, I just want things to go back the way they were. And I realized, man, that's exactly what I've been thinking. I want things to go back. Mm -hmm. They don't go back. They only go forward. And Right. He always, it's, it's through the hard thing, something better is coming. And I'm, I'm still looking for that. And, you know, I, I, I never want that to be, um, art, my creative life looking back and going, Oh, I just want to go back and do that again. Thank you. Sure. That reminds me of, of, of you, you've been, more than a lot of people who came up through hand-drawn animation. Um, you, uh, I remember we, we were talking once and you said something about how, well, that, that was a tool. That was the tool they had, right? Essentially, we have this other tool and you weren't so threatened, or at least it didn't appear to me to be that you were as, a, as threatened as a lot of 
traditional animators were by this new technology, you were able to embrace it. Um, is that part of this moving forward and not going back? Yeah, it's, you know, one of the things that you are afraid of, um, afraid of losing your pencil? Well, no. I mean, I look at the history of art. I mean, thousands and thousands of years. And this is this little sliver of time. People are not going to draw anymore. No, it's you'll find new ways of using that, clarifying, being specific about what the problems are to solve. The pencil is the most, you know, amazing tool. Simplicity is the ultimate sophistication that you you hold it. There's a point on the end. The line goes straight down to your heart. I can see and feel something, but you don't. But I've got this tool that has to make a mark in the end. And it takes what's hidden inside and you can see it and feel it. And so I really like the way you talk about that, that the pencil is a direct line to the heart. That, that, because that tells me what you're, what you're trying to do, what your goal is, that, um, is to take what's out, it's in here and get it there. Um, you know, I had to write this memoir about my brother's murder and, um, I spent a lot of time trying to it was it, it was a it was an element of catharsis but i really was like well if i don't feel it nobody else is going to feel it so i have to go to these places i don't want to go to um that i try to avoid going to on a regular basis um in order to um it's like i had to, i felt like when i was done i had put part of my soul on the page and that that was my job and that was the only way that it was going to be effective. Otherwise, it would be a series of events that people read about. And so, um, that connection, your, your spirit, your heart and getting it down. I just like the way you talk about that, your heart and your pencil. Um, and I just wanted to stop that and pause for a second and let people contemplate that for a second and think about what that really means. Um, because most people, don't want to go there. They 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 want to hide, and they can use their art to hide rather than use it to um, expose. Them. Mm-hmm. Um. Anyway, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. I just thought yeah, well, that's, that's that's reverberating with you, and I, I think that's why you and I connect. Uh, we're both trying to do the same thing. I've always felt that about. Your writing, uh, when you send me photos of flowers, it's like, how in the world is he able to capture these colors? I, I, it's a mystery to me. And every time I just have, it stops me in the tracks, no matter where I am. And then I get them several times a year from you. I just have to like, whoa, <laughs> it stops me. And, and I love that. I love to be stopped by something that, I mean, one of my favorite um, books by C.S. Lewis is called Surprised by Joy. Um, and it was his, his whole 
spiritual life was uh, triggered by the beauty of a sunset, uh, surprised by that. And as a philosopher, incredible mind, he just kept analyzing joy. Where does that, how, what is that? As soon as you look at it, it's like gone. Um, and that experience of, of joy. So the, one of the things that, you know, we talk about leaning into what you don't know and what, and where you'd like to see things go, where I'd like to see things go. I was never afraid of computers because I just, I wanted to learn how to everything be more real around me. And they always forced me to be a better artist. Um, one of the things though that I've been learning from, uh, Jenny Rim working with her is about people, about team building, uh, surrounding yourself with not just your friends, but new people that you don't know uh, that are going to bring something fresh, surprising, scary into your life. And going through this pandemic, I mean, where I see us benefiting from it, for me personally anyway, is um, I've been working with people through Zoom um, all around the world. And my, on my office, I, in my office, I have a big monitor uh, that I call my window to the world um, and working with people in China and New York and Holland and London and, you know, France, everywhere. Um, and that we were already doing that when this pandemic hit. And in one hour, we had to be out of Netflix deadlines, unbelievable deadlines we were hitting. We had to hit, um, but everybody had to leave. And in an hour, there's nothing but coffee cups and coats still on chairs and the day the earth stood still haven't been back but the film continued to progress because we had this way already of working with people in the world i would love the idea creativity and mentorship to kind of work together and connect with people from their cultures to be able to tell their stories back so much of you brian is your encouragement for people to tell their stories. Everything that you're doing is about encouraging people that they have, they are storytellers and that they can do this. And now animation is no longer siloed to big studio walls. Um, you know, when I was thinking about leaving Disney, Ed Catmull could see my anxiety and said, well, Glenn, what are you looking for? What do you want? I said, I don't know. Ed, I just, I just want to creatively live without walls. And so what does that mean? Oh, and I talked about people all around the world that I know that you want to learn from, you want to grow from, you want to, you want to collaborate with. And I, I really hope that that's where animation goes, um, beyond that when we go through this, chamber of exquisite sadness that we're dealing with, you know, speaking it over the moon terms. Yeah. Good. I think you're right. We're not going to go back to what normal was. I think 
what'll happen is that um, people will find that or doesn't there's no we had this technology before, but most of us weren't using it as often as we have to use it now. But what that does is like I've been able to interview all kinds of people um, who live in New York or wherever they live um, because of this technology. And people have been able to work with other people because of this technology technology that they weren't able to work with before. And so I think that that's going to stay. And um, because I think that's going to stay, I think that things will get created that otherwise would not have been created. Mm-hmm. People who would not have worked together are going to work. Um, and um, I I can't wait to see what happens as a result, but I think it would be pretty amazing to see. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And people won't be able to imagine what it was like before when you couldn't work with somebody in another country on a project. You know? Um, like, oh, that must have been hard, is what people will say, I think, in the future. <laughs> you know, you didn't have access to everybody. It's yeah. like you don't have all the colors to paint with. Um, but now we have more of those colors. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that was such a big part of Over the Moon for me was uh, marinating in the Chinese culture and try to understand it. And and so this movie is was so not like an American trying to tell the Chinese story to the world, but being given the opportunity to go and try to look back at the world from their culture and learn. And I, whoa, we go on for hours about stuff I learned. Um, but that's, isn't that the way you want it to be? You know, whatever it is you're, you're doing, you want to not only have a, a film or something you've made at the end of it, but you, you want yourself to have grown and become something more. Uh, because of what you did. Well, I think that there is, when I'm teaching sometimes, people will, they want to know how to write a story or or whatever, but they don't take it outside of the classroom. They don't take it outside. It's like, it has to become part of who you are. You can't just be um, a storyteller or a writer when you sit down to write or be a storyteller. You can't, you, you have to be, it has to be a prism through mm-hmm. which you view the world. There's a reason that you bring your sketchbook with you when you go shopping, right? <laughs> um, or I, I, I remember I met you for lunch once in LA and you had your sketchbook and, and, uh, when I got there, you had already been drawing. It's just part of who you are and how you look at the world is, is, is through your art. Um, and so, and then that informs you, the art informs you, you are, you know, it's this interesting cycle where the art can make you better, a better person. I, I see things when I started taking pictures. I saw the world differently. I started to see the world. Differently. I see pictures all the time. I don't take anymore, but what it allows me to do is look at a moment or look at the way the light's hitting something. Or look at the way a person is sitting or an expression or something and appreciate it in a way that I didn't appreciate it when I wasn't always looking for pictures. Um, and now, even if I don't have my camera, I see pictures all the time that I'm not taking. Um, and it allows me to take a sort of mental sna- snapshot of 
everyday amazing things to see amazing everyday beauty like no well, that i never would have noticed the way the light's hitting that cotton stuff before mm-hmm. um i think that what's interesting especially if you have to explore another culture or get inside a character who's not like you or something like that it's interesting the impact it has on you in the real world um and i think that's what you want um and that's how you get the best of both worlds. You get the best out of your art and the best out of your life, I think, when you let them inform each other. Mm-hmm. I think. Uh, that's exactly the way I want to keep growing creatively. Yeah, you nailed yeah. it. Yeah, I mean, I've seen it. I've seen it with, with your family. Your family always comes up. When, uh, when we were working your family came up a lot. You were saying that your wife was like, people don't want to hear about your family. I enjoyed hearing about your family. <laughs> but <laughs> but um because there was so much you get so much joy from your family. Yeah. Um, you know, um you get so much joy from your family and you're just like, how can I get that into this work? It's just it was it was an interesting thing to see. And that that was um that really stuck with me to watch you uh talk about um Talk about your kids, talk about your grandkids, talk about, um, what you observe in them. Um, even starting with the alligator today, um, you know, there, there's so much joy that you get from them and that so much impacts your work. And I think it's one of the things that makes your work appealing to other people. Um, you know, there are, there are people who, do what you do. There are animators and directors and people who do what you do. And I was thinking this, especially when I was talking to Frank Oz, I'm like, there's other puppeteers. Um, he doesn't like to think of himself that way. Uh, he's, he's really a, an actor. Um, but there are other puppeteers. Why is it that his puppets are the one? Why is it Cookie Monster that people respond to or Grover or? Yeah. Fozzie Bear. And I think it's because for him, actually, he creates from a place of, um, he finds the thing that's the struggle in the character is really important to him. So he figures out what the character's struggling with. Um, Miss Piggy doesn't think she's a very attractive person. She doesn't think she's all those. So her personality comes out of the fact that she's compensating for how she doesn't feel very attractive at all. Um, he said Yoda has a lot of struggles. He didn't tell me what they were. Um, and that's where he creates from, but it's a real place. And that other people can do the, the rest of the performance, but he's not afraid to go deep. Um, and you're not afraid to go deep. And I think that's what makes, that's that thing. How do I make them live? How do I make them live with that? mantra it's how deep can i go yeah how can i not hide yeah you know that's why we are creative people to express ourselves um and i i just really thankful that there's somebody like you that's actually been pulling that out of me uh to get a chance to share this Um, uh i i am really really blessed by your writing 
your perspective on storytelling, uh, your encouragement to artists to be true to who they are. Um, so I look forward to continuing our creative sharing together. I mean, I, I'm always kind of leaning on sayings and phrases and your whole intent. Oh, thank very, you, Glenn. Very much in line with what I'm trying to do anyway, and hoping I, something will come up next. I have no idea what exactly. Some ideas, uh, some things that we've talked about. Oh, yeah, we'll see. We'll see. And I hope we get a chance to, I, it was uh, one of the joys of my life to get to spend that, that little time we had working together. Um, it's, uh, it's a real treasure for me that time. So, um, I, I hope we get to do it again one day. Um, because it really is, um, I, I return to that room in my mind all the time. Um, and, um, and draw from it all the time. So it was really a gift. Um, and I hope that, uh, this conversation and the things we said, uh, people get a little bit of that anyway, of what that was like, because it was really, uh, it was pretty amazing. It was a really amazing time. No, thank you, Brian. Yeah. Thank you. And thanks for doing the show. Thanks for watching. You are a storyteller, part of the CoLoop podcast network. If you have any questions or if there's a topic you'd like us to cover, leave a comment below or email us at hello at beliefagency.com.